Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Sanjay Rawal is back on Off the Couch to discuss some of the recent news and major events in the running world, including the Boston Marathon being held on Indigenous Peoples Day, why the sport of long-distance running might be particularly well-positioned to create a far more equitable situation for Indigenous people, what it means to have had so many high-profile marathons held so close to one another, and we talk about the mission of Shalane Flanagan. And so let's go ahead and run through the news with Sanjay Rawal. Here we go. Well, Sanjay, how are you today and where are you coming from today? I'm doing super well. I am in Jamaica, Queens, where we're 40 plus days into the 3,100 mile race. (laughs) I'm a volunteer there and one of the runners has emotionally adopted me. So I get calls like five times a day to come and bring something or to do like minor body work on him. More of I'm like a, a, an emotional service dog. Right? Wow. Is this a like is this a thing? Like am I allowed to emotionally or have you emotionally adopt me? <laughs> you know, you you don't you don't want that cuz like <laughs> like the my, my one of my buddies a guy named Vasu Duji from Russia is has finished the 3100 mile race 8 times uh, across the last 12 years and is trying for his ninth finish. So to put that in perspective, that's almost 30,000 miles of racing around a single half mile loop in Queens. And, um, you know, he runs like a train in the sense that like, there's no lift from his feet. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's all sliding. And so like he's, he's a, He's fast, but he's a shuffler. So he destroys his shoes. He destroys his feet. He kind of destroys his muscles. And a few of the runners who've done the race multiple times kind of have realized that, like, just because I've been injured so many times running, that I know a thing or two about keeping people's bodies working. So they started calling me, like, once a week. And now I'm getting calls like literally three times a day. And, and they all have helpers. And those helpers thankfully do the dirty work of like cleaning their feet and like and mopping up all their blister juice. But I'm always getting texts like, when are you coming? When are you coming? When are you coming? Like all day long. So I am like an unruly, disobedient, emotional support dog. <laughs> okay. By the way, I think you maybe just gave me the name of a new podcast that we should probably have here at blister we should just have blister juice yeah i don't know what we would talk about on that podcast but it, the name is too good and terrible at the same time so we'll have to think about that one these guys and, and, and one woman are doing more than 60 miles a day you know and there, there's one one runner from taiwan a man named Wei Ming Lo, who was uh, up until about two days ago like 2200 miles in was running in a kind of more advanced version of a flip-flop. And, you know, 
on concrete. They're 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 kind of in between a flip flop and like the kind of cushion of an UFO sandal. Yeah. But apparently, like you know, if if you go to Boulder, for example, like, and you're like on mag on on mags and Magnolia Road, pretty much everyone's gonna be wearing uh, Nike Vaporflies. Mm-hmm. And apparently, like these sandals are like that in Taiwan. Like every runner who wants to make a fashion statement is running in these sandals. And he ran exclusively in sandals until like three days ago when his feet were taking too much of a pounding and he switched to shoes, which he's still using. But as soon as he switched to shoes, he got like a zillion blisters on his feet. And he he gets the cushioning of the shoes now, but he's got to like deal with like destroyed toes and toenails. Exciting stuff in the world of running. But those (laughs) who run ultras, you can't help talk about all the times your toenails fell off. Mm -hmm. Black toenails and blister juice. Exactly. Um, which segues nicely into what we're going to be talking about today, which is, man, races are definitely back. And we have a bunch of high profile ones that have been going on recently. And we, we actually have held off on having this conversation so that we could kind of talk and touch on a, a few more of them. Man, coming from our you know, recent COVID past where pretty much everything was getting canceled, things are back in a big way. It's crazy, right? Like 2020 was such a, uh, a disastrous year for pros and, and, and pro, pro runners and also for folks that like use races as a way to motivate their training throughout the year. I mean, there was like nothing to train for. So there's like no reason to, to, to run. And yet, you know, we still eat the same amount of stuff. So everyone packed on the quarantine 15 or in some cases like the quarantine 20. <laughs> that said, it's like even at the beginning of this year, everything was up in flux, right? We didn't even know that the, if the Olympics were going to happen until like they actually happened. And it was questionable whether these they called the Abbott World Marathon Majors. There are six races, London, Berlin, Chicago, Boston, Tokyo, and New York. And they're, they're staggered throughout the year. Like, you know, London and Tokyo are usually, and Boston are, are usually spring marathons and the rest are, are fall, fall marathons. You know, at the same time, like some of these, some, some of these races want to make money. And so, you know, they couldn't really schedule them before for the Olympics because these are marathons and you're not really quite sure whether the elite athletes that you'd like to have come are going to make their Olympic teams, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the Olympic marathon is weird in the sense that it's not the best race in the world because Ethiopia, which might have like 11 of the top 20 male marathoners and probably like 14 of the top 20 female marathoners in the world, they only get to send three runners each to the Olympics. And it's obviously same with Kenya and same with every other country. And so you're not really quite sure how your fields are going to stack up from the, these pro marathon sides. That said, it's like once those Olympic teams were set by June, July, you know, all of these marathons began competing to have the fastest runners. And London Marathon has the most money and they obviously got the pick of the, of the crop. But that said, it's like you've got six marathons in seven weeks. One of them, Tokyo, got canceled, I think because the population in Japan and Tokyo was just sick of like 
the government like just letting every athletic event happen, whether there was a, a, a real valid risk or not. Um, and so the Tokyo Marathon just became virtual. And everything else though has been going on. We've, done, we've already been through the London Marathon, the Berlin Marathon this last weekend. Chicago was on Sunday. Boston was on Monday. Now Boston's usually on Patriots Day in April and it was flipped to the second Monday in October, which happened to be on Indigenous Peoples Day. It kind of created a bit of a problem because the Boston Marathon route goes through multiple cities. It's not like London or Berlin or New York, which are kind of all just in one, or Chicago, like in one contained city. So a bunch of people that were planning their annual kind of Indigenous Peoples Day celebrations on the streets where the Boston Marathon is run didn't get their permits. And that kind of sucked. And Boston, you know, didn't really kind of know that was happening because they never do the race in October and everybody, you know, in America were all kind of clueless for all the wrong reasons about Native American, the reality for, for Native Americans in this country. Um, that said, it's like when push came to shove and the federally and state recognized tribes in Massachusetts and, you know, in Rhode Island and Connecticut, like hollered at the Boston Athletic Association, some cool things happened. Like, first of all, there was a land acknowledgement that the course is on land that was traditionally stewarded by a number of tribes. Uh, that never happens except, except in kind of like the more woke ultra races. Um, and the ones that really happen kind of like on Arizona and New Mexico, where folks realize that there's tons of Native Americans that are still here. Um, most other races don't even really care. But for a major city marathon to go like, yeah, like 500 years ago, this was all Indian land and we're running through it. But more importantly, Boston has actually had a history of Native champions. He had a guy named Ellison Tarzan Brown, who was from the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe that won one year. You know, he was actually passed by uh, a famous Boston runner, John Kelly, on one of the last hills. John Kelly patted him on the back and said, basically, better luck next time. And that kind of sparked something in Ellison Brown. And Ellison took off and broke John Kelly's heart, and hence that last big hill in the marathon is called Heartbreak Hill because old John Kelly was paternal, paternalistic, patronizing to the wrong dude. Um, there's another guy named Tom Longboat that Tom Longboat that won, and my coach Patty Catalano Dillon uh, was runner-up in '79, '80, and '81, and she's originally from the Micmac people up in Nova Scotia, though raised in Boston, and she was the honorary starter this year. So a lot of love for Native American runners, uh, Wings of America, a, a, a charity out in New Mexico and Arizona was honored and their executive director, you know, hustled out there and ran a 228 marathon. So nice little acknowledgement of, of, of Native presence there. Well, Sanjay, you have quite clearly been pretty close to some of the various things trying to highlight and help Native American and indigenous communities. And I guess I'm just interested from your perspective, where do you see this 
all being, say, 10 years from now? Because it feels like there is a proper kind of momentum here. Are you feeling optimistic about this or are you like, man, it is hard all the time, always, still? Well, I'll, I'll put it into just a perspective from, from an elite running standpoint. You know, the, the best runners in the world in terms of cultures that continuously produce great runners or have for the last couple of decades since they've had access to nutrition, technology, etc., are from communities at high altitude with a deep cultural context for running that still look at running as a community activity, even though individuals might be competing. And, you know, the most famous areas are, you know, the, the you know, are in Kenya and, and in Ethiopia to the degree where, you know, Elliot Kipchoge, sub two hour marathoner, official marathon world record holder says over and over and over that like he wouldn't have accomplished what he has if it weren't for his teammates, the people that he runs with, the people that he lives with, the people that he trains with. So even though the races might seem like they're solitary achievements, the whole community is needed for him to achieve his best. And along the way, a lot of other people achieve their best too. Now, where do we have those types of cultures in the U.S.? It's not Boulder, right? Like Boulder folks are there for a few years, make some friends, you know, probably like can't afford it and move to Flagstaff or whatever. It's like there's there's nothing keeping us in particular places just because, you know, it's so easy for us to move and we don't necessarily plant deep roots. But, you know, Indian country, indigenous areas of the United States, and specifically like in the Southwest, New Mexico, Arizona still have very, very rich running traditions. And they've produced some fabulous high school athletes. Now there's been a huge gap in getting those high, high school athletes to the pro ranks. You know, there's obviously a lot of racism in this country, a lot of historical trauma that they've had to deal with, and then just a totally different set of culture shocks from going from their from the res to like, you know, a division one college. That said, you know, pro-American coaches have been looking at Indian country as the places that will produce the next generation of great American runners on par with the Ethiopians and Kenyans. Not one-offs like the American runners right now who've grown up in multiple different places and maybe got congealed by a brand to live in Portland or in Flagstaff, but kids that have run in communities and have run with other kids for decades who still go and live in their villages and train in their villages and then go around the world to compete. So a lot of potential. And again, there's a, from, from there, there's just a lot of things that non-natives just aren't taught that, you know, this country that we call America now was not a wilderness when colonizers, settlers first started coming here. There were hundreds of thousands of Native Americans you know, thousands of, of, of different tribes and bands and villages. And they had relationships with each other for 10,000 years. And there were trails. And there was a lot of running. Because for those of you who've been to like Bears Ears or to the Grand Canyon, it's like, it's maybe faster if you're not carrying a bunch of stuff to like run from place to place rather than taking any other sort of animal, whether a horse or a mule or you know, maybe in the absence of, of, of domesticated animals, 
you know, to get someplace, you and to get someplace fast, you sent a runner. And so there were quote pro runners or run people whose occupation was running for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And a big set of cultural and spiritual practices got built around that. And there was an article in an unnamed magazine about, you know, uh, six months ago about, you know, an incredible American gentleman, but he was, was labeled incorrectly as like America's first ultra distance runner. And like, you know, he, he was awesome, but that's kind of like the dumbest statement ever when, you know, we basically like booted people, we booted cultures of runners off of their lands and, you know, destroyed their ability and incentive to live a healthy life and to be able to train and run as a job or as a profession, culturally speaking, and then to go out and say like, we're the first runners that have ever been here as people whose ancestors might've been from Europe or Asia just 50, 100, 200, 300 years ago. So that said, my first and most basic thing is just to go like, yeah, we're on someone else's land. And like Im imagine the feeling, you know, that you would have if, if, and this might, this might be true in, in many people's cases and therefore it should be a little bit more easy to understand what natives go through. Like imagine like a hundred years ago, your family had always lived in a village particular village, wherever, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Poland, whether it's, it's Wales or somewhere else. And they built their wealth there. They built property. They, you know, developed a, a deep relationship with the land that they'd always been on. Maybe they farmed, maybe they had livestock, maybe they had a trade. And then in one fell swoop, it was all taken away from them. And, you know, in many of those cases, th those people, our ancestors traveled hundreds of miles away, but like, what if the people who took your land lived 10 miles away from you? Or the people whose family took your land lived 10 or 15 miles away from you? And you saw them all the time and they didn't necessarily acknowledge that like the land they're on used to be your great grandparents and now you're living in squalor while they're driving around like a Ford Raptor. Because uh, they've taken out loans on that land. They've built their family's wealth on the land that had built your family's wealth. So that all, from a personal perspective, really sucks. But then to understand that U.S. policy has always been about taking native land because that's what we needed to farm. It was their farms that we co-opted into our mega farms to grow tobacco and cotton to ship to Europe, even as a new country, to build the wealth of this country. And then petroleum. It's like to going to the, the rocky, more mountainous native lands that have been stewarded for thousands of years and dig up those mountains and haul out, you know, zillions of pounds of copper and destroy those rivers, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm painting a bleak picture. But the, the most basic thing is to say like, hey, yeah, like not only did we take your land, but you all are still here. And like, I don't really know how we're going to do reparations and we're not talking about that, but like let's acknowledge the role that your people played in making our homes and the land that we live on beautiful and, and pure and, and healthy places for us to raise our family. Um, and that, that's, that's kind of performative. It's like the most basic thing you can do. And it doesn't really mean anything unless you start going like, yeah, we've built a lot of wealth on your land. And basically we, there's a finite amount of wealth and we kind of took all of yours to build ours. Um, and let, let's do something to at least, at least create a pathway to equity. 
And what Boston did is, you know, Boston gave a, a, a big grant to Wings of America, Southwestern Native Organization, to further its work in Indian country to revitalize running traditions. They also gave a lot of money to local African-American running organizations that are trying to dissolve the exclusivity that's been created around American running culture, which for whatever reason in long distance running has primarily been white. I don't know. I don't really know why and how that happened. Um, Cause you know, it's like most of our Olympians, you know, in the sprints are, are not white. So it's, it's just a weird thing, but it is a reality. And there's a, a lot of barriers that, you know, Brown kids have, you know, in joining cross country teams, or if their teams go to nationals, like the crap they get from other kids, because kids are kids and kids are little jerks. And then when you throw in like race, they can be even bigger jerks. So like, there's a lot of issues that would prevent, you know, a really good American, you know, person of color from, you know, wanting to make running their profession, knowing that they probably have to deal with 10 times the amount of crap they're dealing with as high school runners. And, and that's the case in the, you know, we spoke about Native American runners and how there's, they're great high school runners and not so many great college runners and very few, if any, even good or passable pros, even though there, there are plenty that have had potential. And from a competitive standpoint, if these races began doing the basic thing, acknowledging the existence of natives, if they began creating a pipeline so that natives and other people of color can actually come to those races and enjoy those races and perform, then you, you create a pipeline for all of these great kids that maybe don't have access to the cross country team, maybe don't have access to the type of coaching that you need to become the best runner in America. And heck, I don't think any of us, I don't even think the, 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 the most outwardly racist person in America would object if we sent a lot more people to these global championships who came home with medals. Because, you know, American runners these days, we're, we're happy to just kind of show up with the exception of, you know, a handful. Um, but it's very rare that in a major marathon, we'll be able to say like, yeah, this American runner has a shot at number one. And if they do, it's always a huge surprise to everyone. Like I love Molly Seidel, you know, Boston runner lives in Flagstaff, um, you know, third at the U S Olympics. I mean, at the Olympics in, 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 um, in Tokyo, nobody had her on their fantasy, you know, <laughs> marathon team, yeah. nobody. Even the marathon, the fantasy marathon teams that were out there, they were like, you know, basically like you could just pick a generic American, like any American to be on your fantasy team to place. So, but to be able to send people and say like, yeah, we have a legit chance of putting two on a podium, you know, three on a podium for a major distance event can happen. I mean, we've got 330 million people in this country, a heck of a lot of resources. So, um, you know, why not figure out how to like take all the medals away from the Kenyans and Ethiopians in the next generation? And a lot of that comes from like expanding the base of, of American distance running. Hmm. Boy, that was all very interesting and a lot of thoughts. 
so I'm going to a couple different areas here in my head. One, especially talking about the inherent cultural communal setup here that you're saying is just really conducive to be be creating really top level runners. I, I've been thinking about how we continue to highlight, shine a light, give more of a voice to these communities. And you've you've already said this really well. But you know, we have in some sort of high profile ways in our, you know, National Football League, right? Like getting rid of certain mascots. We see that in Major League Baseball. But I can't think of other sports where we could make an argument as you just did where there's something inherent to the culture and the community where, again, you know, I think you just said, well, these are the ingredients, key ingredients for really establishing excellence, say, in the area of long distance running. I don't I don't see that analogy when it comes to, say, baseball or football or something. Well, I, I would I would say it, it totally applies to basketball, basketball, it, because like the NBA has always been super forward thinking in in activism. Not, not always, but I should just say in the last 10 years or so, they've permitted athletes to do more than you know, almost any other sport. And it's not necessarily because of any kind of like inherent generosity. It's more that they've realized how much money they can make and how much more. And, and, and it's, it's not necessarily by just going into a country in the middle of nowhere and selling a bunch of t-shirts. But like when Yao Ming came from China to the US, like, oh my God, it opened up a huge market. And part of that thinking was absorbed by the NBA brass and they began putting basketball courts, really good ones, all over the world and basically creating dreams for kids that they one day could play in the NBA. I mean, that, that's existed for soccer, for, for global football, where you could be a kid barefooted with a rolled up ball of rags, yep. like kicking it around and you could legitimately see a pathway to playing, you know, in the premiership. You literally could. It would be like, okay, I'm going to play for my club team. And then like, maybe I'll get, you know, a transfer to the capital team. And if we do well in the regional tournament, maybe I'll be on like the, the, the B squad for a small European team. And if I make it onto the A squad, like, and do well. So basically in four seasons, I have a shot to play in England, but like some kid with a ball of rags and like a coat hanger clipped to the wall in like wherever you know, make up any country, you know, 15 years ago, would never have a pathway. You know, first of all, like basketball is kind of a complicated sport if you don't have a culture around it. And you need to be developed like you do in soccer from a really young age, and that's going to require money. So the NBA has done this all around the world, which is why like, you know, 30 years ago, you had a couple of Lithuanians as the exotic foreigners. Now it's like every squad legit has Europeans or Africans or, you know, people of African heritage from Europe, you know, from Asia, et cetera. And it's not a surprise anymore. And, you know, in the U.S., there are 570 plus Native American tribes, each with their own histories and languages and specific cultural practices. So we've got 500 different countries 
in the United States. So you begin by show, giving a pathway for those kids to excel in a bigger sport, and there is a chance. Like it's never been an issue with basketball in Indian country. Like, like res ball is is huge, and it's like you know those kids like ball is life, and because you know they can get scholarships to like Arizona State, they have. I mean, there's been a big cultural gap, of course, moving from a res to you know a Division One school, but you know they've become a little bit more successful in the last five or ten years, and you know making it more welcoming for those kids once they're on campus that hasn't quite happened in running yet but if it did you know we'd pretty soon see like half of the pro ranks being made up by i mean pretty soon meaning in the next 10 years half of the pro ranks you know being made up of, of indigenous runners i mean it's really exciting to 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 consider this and imagine this so let me ask maybe the harder question or I'll come back to my initial question, where do you actually think we will be in 10 years? You know, to be honest, I, I, I like to dream, but yeah. it's not really easy to go. It's not really easy to, to predict the future when everything is, is so bonkers. That said, you know, like, there are organizations like Wings of America that are, you know, that are raising money to build an elite pro team. In fact, I'm saying this because I'm on the board of, of Wings. We just purchased a, um, a house slash office in Albuquerque, which is going to be the base for five or six 20-something-year-old um, runners whom we recruit, um, or, or even younger if there are kids that were just great high school runners you know, and just never really got to go to college, never really made it to college and give them sponsorship, give them coaching, give them all the tech they need to develop into pro athletes. We only have the budget to do like three or four a year, but hopefully we'll pick the right three or four. And you know, if one or two of them ends up at Olympic trials in their event, it's already gonna be a minor victory because that's gonna show to other, that's gonna create a pathway for other people in Indian country to say, hey, you know, if I want to continue my love of running, I need to apply to the Wings of America elite team. And with more money and more resources, you know, we can expand that to like a Bowerman track club, 20, 30, 40 different athletes spread across, you know, a number of different tribes, um, all training together, all with one singular vision of being champions. Well, speaking of the Bowerman track club, there is uh, another individual associated with it who is doing some pretty interesting things right now. Remarkable things. People, you know, who've been following mainstream news will even know that Shalane Flanagan, you know, uh, former national champion, New York City Marathon winner, uh, Rio, medal Rio Olympic medalist, has decided to um, set a lofty goal of running six marathon majors this fall across seven weeks. Yeah, we've certainly had <laughs> people run consecutive marathons on consecutive days, but this is a bit different, right? Or put that in context for us, how unique this particular effort or attempt looks to you. Well, you know, when you, when you really go all out in a marathon, you know, it can take three, four, five, six weeks to recover. 
And for most people who don't do the marathon necessarily just to accomplish the distance, if you if you run the marathon at your long run pace, it's, it'll still take you a week or two or three before you want to attempt it again. It's an often, you know, talked about topic, you know, when a, a pro runs a marathon all out, like at the Olympics in August, and then signs up or is, is, is you know, appears at a marathon six weeks later, eight weeks later, like Galen Rupp, for example, did the Chicago marathon, was trying to set, you know, an American record, uh, which was in the 205 range, which would have been about 30 seconds faster than his personal best. The Chicago Marathon was held in relatively warm conditions and, you know, it had, you know, some winds coming from unfavorable directions and he finished in the high 206s. That's, you know, it's nine weeks after the Olympic Marathon in Hokkaido. So, you know, you had some, some recovery issues where you've got these top pros running races that for them are, are, are a little bit too close together. But there's one woman who is an incredible, I should say was an incredible professional runner, though she's a, a quote, retired from running and is just a coach for the Bowerman Track Club. She decided to run all six marathon majors, including Tokyo as a virtual race in that span of seven weeks. And so she started out with, at London and uh, actually Berlin, you know, ran a, a 2.38 which I think would have would have placed her 19th if she had entered in the elite women's wave and had run the start with them. Um, 2.38 is just a hair over six-minute pace. Um, and I think she, she commented that she kind of made, made the mistake of, of, of jumping into the corral, into the wave of the sub-elite men who were all kind of shooting for like 2.18 to 2.30. So she went out a little faster than she would have wanted to. Now, her, her personal best is in the low 220s. So, you know, running a 238 is not that big of a deal for her. But again, it's like she knew that she had five more marathons to run. So she did 238 in, in Berlin. Then she, you know, went over to, to London a week later, ran 235. Um, a week later, just this last Sunday was Chicago. I believe she'd did that in in the upper 240s like 246 but then this was the kicker you know chicago ended at uh about 11 a.m and she basically had 22 hours or so before the boston marathon was going to start she finished chicago in 246 you know hopped on a plane luckily she wasn't on one of the southwest airline flights on sunday that got canceled otherwise she probably would have had to been driven she ran Boston in 240. Now she's got a little bit of a break. I'm not really quite sure when she's going to throw in the uh, the virtual Tokyo event. I've, I've heard that it's she's going to do it this coming weekend in her home in Oregon. Um, and then she's got a solid, what, two weeks until the um, New York City Marathon. Her goal was to break three hours in all six marathons. Which again, it's like for a, a a pro male, like that's it. Those are easy long runs on the weekend. For ninety nine point nine percent of other people, you'd be happy with a sub three hour or a, in her case, a sub two forty seven once a year. You know, some people would be many people. You know men and women would be thrilled with a sub 240 once in their life. 
and to have like a series of these 238, 235, 246, 240s, you know, just stacked like this makes a lot of people go like, huh, should Shalane be running ultras? Uh, like, huh, huh. you know, 235 is a long ways away from Bridget Koskai, the Kenyan female world record holder who will beat 99% of men in races. She runs a 214. She ran a 214 world record in Chicago in 2019. So it's not like Shalane's going to be able to compete with them. And, you know, there's a lot of runners that have broken 220. And so she's not really competitive on that elite world female stage anymore. That said, it's like, you know, can't we put her to better use? It's like, yeah, it's fun for everybody to see her like killing it. But like, you know, why doesn't she go and like try to break Des Linden's 50K world record? Like maybe she should enter into some, into some flat 50 milers. Like, you know, 40's the new 30. Mm-hmm. And she has not, you know, exhausted her potential. In fact, it seems like in many ways, you know, even though she might've exhausted it from a pro marathoning standpoint, she's just kind of scratching the surface in terms of other goals. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. It's like, particularly, you know, like pros know how to recover. You can go like, yeah, she's got masseuses, masseurs, body workers, like all the latest tech, all that stuff. So, you know, it's like you could see her running that 238 and just having a week in like a salt bath and then running the 235 in London. But the 246 in Chicago on Sunday and the 240 in Boston on Monday, there's there are only a couple of folks I know that have done crazy things like that. Like Mike Wardian, I believe, ran like a 221 or something at Olympic trials a decade ago. And then the next day, like ran the Houston Marathon sub 230. Um, but again, it's like that That's that, that 230 or 221 even wouldn't have placed him as high as Shalane's times placed her in those races. So you can say that just weighted, her times are pretty much, you know, once, like once in a lifetime, once ever types of marks for female distance runners. So it's hard, it's hard to get perspective on it when she's still got really, you know, one virtual run, which I'm sure she's going to pick the flattest course and it'll all be much easier than these winding roads of cities. But when she gets to New York where she's won, like, can't she, is she going to drop the hammer? Because it's, it's clear that she hasn't bonked in any of these races and she could probably, you know, push it to another gear. Interesting. I love the idea that she's pulling all this off and I like this sense that people are like, you should be doing these other things. It's like, well, wait, I'm doing this right now. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a funny thing though, because it's like people who run, I mean, I think we can generalize, like people who run track and marathons have no idea what the ultra distance world is like. You know, they just go like, oh my God, I hate running on trails because I almost sprained my ankle in like the 2016 Rio Olympic <laughs> training cycle or something dumb. And at the same time, they're just like, I can't go fast on trails. And it's like, why would I ever want to run, you know, 50K or 50 miles? Like the marathon's bad enough, but it's like, here she is like running six marathons in seven weeks. Like, hello, that's kind of like what hobby joggers do. Like a lot of my friends have entered into like multiple world marathon majors, but she could still 
set world records. Like maybe she doesn't want to do the grind and like, you know, represent the U.S. in some major competition or whatever. But it's like, I I say like she could still set world records. And like maybe if any of her friends are listening to this podcast who are in the ultra world, like put a race on her calendar, put a race (laughs) in front of her and show her like she could not only win it, but like she could set a world best. Um, she never had a world record in a marathon. So like, you know, why not set one in the uh, 50K, which is, you know, just you know a few more miles. I feel like this might need to be a podcast conversation. We get Shalane and you, and just the conversation is you trying to convince her into doing this, you know, laying out the reasons that you've sort of laid out here. and But then we'd get her response. <laughs> well, well, like there's, there's even things like the 12 hour world record, the 24 hour world record where, you you know, you go, you just have to run for one day, just one day, then the next six months off, you don't have to like run a marathon, then like hop on a flight and like get massage on the flight and like wake up super early. It's like, you know, just do it all at once. Hmm. <laughs> okay. Sanjay, maybe this will be episode number one of our new podcast Blister juice. Blister juice and broken toenails. (laughs) It'll just be you trying to cajole people into doing other things they haven't yet done. There's maybe our angle. Okay. This is coming together. (laughs) Well, hey, Sanjay, as always, I love hearing your take on the things that are going on in the running world these days. And I, I mean, there were a massive amount of other races and incredible efforts that we did not touch on. I think for now, though, uh, we will say salute to everyone who is out there finishing races and and putting forth those good efforts. It's exciting to see all these races back. And um, Sanjay, it's always great to get your perspective on these things. So thank you very much. I have a great time reconnecting with you, Jonathan, and I'm I'm eager that we've we've got this this avenue to do so. Mm. Exactly. And, uh, you know, you might be getting that text from me any day to what was it? I, you're going to be my emotional support. Uh, I'll be, I'll be begging you to be my emotional support person. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you don't have to reply to those texts. It's okay. I'll forgive you in advance. <laughs> okay. Sanjay, I'll talk to you soon. Great, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Sanjay for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everyone else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again real soon.